So we're going to do, we didn't finish last time the first four centuries. We'd finished the first um, three. We're coming into the fourth century a little bit. And actually, that might be uh, really good for us because two, some of the biggest events of the fourth and fifth century are the first four general councils. So I'm going to talk about creeds and councils now, do the, and then we'll double back and then put that with the other things. So let's talk about creeds and councils. Uh, and basically, how we need to understand those, the big overview is, why are creeds and councils important? It tells us how has the, we read the, script, the, the scriptures together, right? The scripture isn't something we do individually. We read it as church. And so it tells us it's our evidence of how has the church read the scripture together. So, uh, first of all, let's, we're going to have three topics. What is a creed? What is a council? How does it work? And what was actually clarified at the seven general councils or ecumenical councils? So the first thing is, what is a creed? Uh, isn't that neat? You see that uh, illustration there? That's called in Greek a symbolum. In most languages other than English, the word for creed is a symbol. Like in Spanish and French, etc., a symbol. Creed comes from the Latin word credo, I believe. But actually, what a symbolon was, in the ancient world, how could you authenticate that somebody was who they claimed to be? You know, what was their idea of real ID, like for a driver's license? They would take an, uh, take an object that, when broken, wouldn't break regularly, would break in odd things, like a jigsaw, and they'd give you a half, and the other person would have a half, so that it would only match the other person. That's a symbolon in Greek. There's a regular word for that, because it's so common. That's their version of real ID. How can I really know for sure you're the messenger sent? So I said, I'm going to leave this with you, and the person I send will have the other half when they come back, and would fit, you know, there's, it's not an even break. It'll be one of those things where it's a jagged break. So here's an actual symbolum we have from the ancient worlds, you know, that's uh, survived in a museum. So again, in most languages, if people talk about a symbol, they're not talking about a symbol spelled with an L-E, they're talking about symbol O-L, uh, is normally the word for a creed in most languages other than English. So you'll often people use it even in English and when you read in theology and things. So just so you know the word, that's where it comes from. They'll talk about the symbol of the apostles. So you're thinking, what does that look like, a symbol? No, symbol with an O-L simply means a creed. And, it's, and that tells you a lot, though. The reason they love the word symbolon is how does a Christian really know they're meeting another Christian? What really makes us Christians? How do we know it's one of us? And you say, you put this together. I believe the same thing. I believe in God, the Father, our creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. These are the things we, ah, it's the real thing. Okay. Now, there are three Catholic creeds, meaning that were recognized by, you know, the, uh, that we call this the traditional term for the Catholic creeds. The first is the Apostles' Creed. <coughs> this was the baptismal creed of the Roman Church. And the Roman Church had a special pride of place with people not because of uh, any claims by the Pope, it was because uh, when people looked at the great cities where the apostles had been, both Peter and Paul had been in Rome, so basically customs that they have in Rome, the customs of Rome were considered to have, hey, means a lot if they, you know, it's like saying, if you're saying what's a good German or something, you know, say, you know, someone who's in Germany would be considered a better determiner of that. <laughs> so the, the baptismal creed of the Roman church is, that's why we always use this creed of baptisms, always. We don't use the, now, what happened is, as we're going to see in the, in the councils, sometimes people, some of the words seem to be ambiguous to some people. What does it mean to be the only begotten Son of God? You'd think that's unambiguous, but we have heretics for that became ambiguous. So what the, basically the Nicene Creed was an expansion of the baptismal creed. Like we say in the baptismal creed, we believe in the Holy Spirit. 
But what do we say the night? We believe the Holy Spirit. Who is he? The Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Together with the Father and Son, he's worshiped and glorified. He's spoken to the prophets. So people are saying, what is the Holy Spirit? Is it just a thing, etc.? So we basically expanded what's already in. Everything in Nicene Creed is in. The Apostles' Creed is simply expanded because of misunderstandings, remove any misinterpretation of what was intended. And uh, again, we'll see it was developed at the first ecumenical council of Nicaea, it was the Nicene Creed, and it was later expanded. The original Nicene Creed simply has the words, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. It doesn't say anything except I believe in the Holy Spirit. When people began having, say, what do you mean by the Holy Spirit? It's at a second council that we call second, uh, which we call rather First Constantinople, which is the very next ecumenical council where they actually filled it in because people were having, we'll talk about misunderstandings. That's where they added those words. So actually when you read technical literature, they don't call it the Nicene Creed. This is hard to pronounce because English has tonic accents, which is really tough, you have to memorize them. But it's, um, it's called the Nicaea Constantinopolitan Creed. That's, so if actually you see that what they're simply saying, people who really, when you get into scholarship, want to distinguish between the original form of the Nicene Creed as opposed to the one that has the extra words of the Holy Spirit, they talk about the final form that we use today. We call it the Nicene Creed, but in books, when you read about it, they'll call it the Nicaea Constantinopolitan Creed. Constantinopolitan, that's it, Constantinopolitan. Okay. Then we have something called the Athanasian Creed. And this is decided, this is a great creed to study theology with, you want to understand the Trinity. Because this is the creed for, you know, like an idiot's guide to the Trinity. It spells everything out. It assumes you know nothing in case you're brain dead. Here's what I'm saying, and it says everything. You'll see it's beautifully done, but it's actually a really good tool for studying because it leaves no stone on, no possibility. Yes, I mean this. The Father is not the Son. That kind of, you know, thing is, you know, okay. <coughs> so it really spells it out. Those are the three great Catholic creeds. Okay. Now, what's the authority of the creed? Now, we believe that the scriptures are the sole authority in faith, right? We believe sola scriptura. They are the absolute sufficient. So what the creed, however, is, what makes the creed important, it's how the church has read the scripture. There's nothing in the creeds, which we say is not clearly taught in the scriptures. It's simply an executive summary of the essence of the faith. Why is it important to have an executive summary? I know people, I bet you do too, who call themselves Christians, but they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, but they believe Jesus is a great teacher. You know, this guy, he was a great, you know, this kind of thing. They say, well, I'm a Christian. It's like, no, our definition, if you read the New Testament, what does it say about Jesus? What is the essential part of faith? We believe Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. He was born, that this is what it means to be a Christian. So you can't just say, well, I like Jesus the teacher. That works for me. You know, it basically is saying, here's how the creed is said. This is really, if you had to sum it up, what's essential about our faith? How do you know you're really embracing the faith of Jesus Christ? And these is very limited. These are the things that are simply, this is an executive summary of what the scriptures teach. Nothing different from that. Just, and that's why we argue they're authoritative, because the church agreed that this summarizes how we read the scriptures. It's nothing in addition to the scriptures. Everything can be clearly proved from the scriptures. Okay. So it says, we profess, for example, here in our Articles of Religion for ACNA, we confess, rather our theological statement, we confess as proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. That means we have, you know, sure, sure proof in the Scripture. The historic faith of the undivided church is declared in the three Catholic creeds. So we declare that they're authoritative because they teach 
exactly what the Bible teaches. Not because they're creeds, because they represent how did the Bible, the whole church together, the undivided church, read the scriptures and say, here's how we understand it. The scriptures teach there's one God. He's the Father, the Almighty. He made heaven and earth. Jesus Christ. That's what the scriptures teach. So its authority comes from the scripture. It's simply the church saying, here's how we read the scripture together. So what's a council? Okay, how did the apostolic church deal with issues? Now, we have a great example in the book of Acts of the Apostles in chapter 15. One of the earliest things was we knew that the church was clearly the good, part of the good news of Jesus Christ. We were promised in the Old Testament, we were promised that the promise of Abraham was for everybody. The Jews would be a vehicle of grace for the entire world. Of course, God chose them as his people. But they were on a mission, like he chose us, but we're on a mission for others. They were on a mission, you know, that they would be a blessing to the whole world. That's what Jesus takes the Pharisees to task. They thought it was all for themselves. Forget the mission, just let's circle the wagons. And so they're on a mission, uh, you know, for the, uh, for the whole world. Okay, and so the idea is that, that uh, okay, we agree that the faith of Jesus is open to Gentiles. It's open to everybody. But some Christians say what that means is everybody can, be, you know, can become a Jew. You know, you have to become a Jew first, and then we all together will share the faith in Jesus. And some people said, no, you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. You can, if you're a Gentile, you become a Christian. If you're a Jew, you become a Christian. You're still a Jew, but you're a Christian. You're a Gentile, you're a Christian. But some said, no, no, you have to go through the Jewish thing. You have to be Jewish. For, like, you have to be a deacon before you can be a priest. You have to go through this. And this is a big deal uh, for people. It was a real deal breaker. And so this is almost divided, well, was dividing the church. And so they actually said, well, how did they handle the problem? Look what it says. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after much debate, and what's the final resolution? They describe what happened when they got together. Tell me what happened. It says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So simply they, they gathered as church and they sought God. They sought the Holy Spirit saying, we are gathered as a whole church. And we need your guidance on this. We're seeking you together. We're reading the word together. We're seeking you together. How are we to interpret this? And they say, well, we sought the Holy Spirit. Here's what it is. It would seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us. It's sort of a form of prophecy, like our bishop always tells us. It's a gift. is speaking the truth in a situation. The, the council said, this is the truth in the situation. So in the earliest church, what we had were synods. Uh, for those of you who don't know any Greek, is what synod means is sin is the, is the a preposition in Greek for with. That's really helpful. Like synoptic, remember saying with the same angle, perspective, like synoptic, optical, like with, looking from the same vantage point is a synoptic. So syn, uh, synodos meant, uh, odos is like exodus, exodus means going, it means a going or, or coming together. So synodos means coming together. Like we'd say con. Uh, uh, congress comes from that in Latin. The exact con congratior in Latin means to come together. So we get congress from congratior. So the same thing in Greek, synodos simply means a coming together. People come together. So what happened is in the earliest church, when a, when a problem arose, uh, for example, there's a bishop who's just not doing what a bishop should, he needs to be disciplined. His brother bishops need to do something about it. He's misleading the flock or he's living a scandal of life. What do we do? They would gather together a question, or do he's teaching something we don't think is right doctrine. The bishops of that area would gather together in a meeting called the Synod to settle the issue on doctrine or discipline. They go, like in the Acts of the Apostles' Mount, they go, they pray about it, say, here's our decision, and here's what's happened. You know, this is the right answer. Get with the program, or we're going to have to depose you and put in another bishop, because this is, the this, is how the, this is how we know what the church believes. Now, what happens there is it wasn't possible, but the church still being uh, 
illegal and you know, as being a quasi-illegal organization, the problem became it wasn't practical to meet any more than in local groups, like in a, in a given province. You couldn't meet everybody together. It just was not feasible. And so what would happen here is once Constantine becomes the emperor and Christianity, first of all, is made legal and becomes the state religion, it's now possible for people from all over the empire to come together publicly and actually deal with things. So that's how we get the ecumenical councils will come from that. So what we have here is two factors that led to, to the thing is one thing, it's now possible to have the whole church's view on an issue that's involving the whole church. Because more counselors, the better. What's the teaching of the entire church? And the second thing is, remember we said, if you were with us last week, is why did the Roman Empire become Christian? In a practical matter, what happened was we know in the third, in the third century there was a dramatic fight to the death between paganism and Christianity. And they found that paganism would drive out Christianity. We talked about the fact that all people saying, look, we need unity in the face of the empire having serious threats from the outside. We need to be united. Religion in the ancient world is the big uniting force. We can't be divided. Finally, at the end of the third century, people said, look, fundamentally, it's clear the Christians aren't going away. They're the growing thing. And so if we have to have one, they choose Christianity because it just says more people, you know, that this is possible. We can see that people can go to Christianity, but there's no way. It's not coming back. You know, the paganism is dead as a doornail. You know, so they, they choose that. But here's the trouble. Since, Christi since part of the purpose in the ancient world of religion was unity, it meant now that the emperors say, we don't want anything in the church that would create disunity. If people start having a food fight over doctrine or discipline in the church, we need to solve it. We can't have the church. The church is supposed to be what brings us together, not what divides us. So this is why it's a, a Roman empire who call, emperor who calls the first council together. He says, you guys are fighting over this one that we'll talk about. And we can't have that. We have to agree. Now, notice how he handled I'm not here. I'm not a theologian. That's not my point. My, my point isn't to make the decision, but to get the people. It's your job as bishops to make that decision. I can make you do it. It's not like when you're kids, you say, look, I can't do your homework for you, but I'm your parent. I'm going to make sure you do it. <laughs> it's like, I'm not going to do your homework for you. That's not, it wouldn't be homework. So it wasn't that the emperor would make any decisions, but the emperor would call and say, you're, it's your job to get unity, so you need to straighten this out. You're the ones in authority. You're the bishops of the church. You need to figure this out because there needs to be an answer. Okay, and the term ecumenical, we like the term general is more common among uh, um, Anglicans, but an ecumenical council is simply the word, the ancient, the ancient Romans and Greeks described the world that spoke Latin and Greek. Basically, the world of the Roman Empire was called the ecumenoi. It was basically the civilized world. <laughs> The world of cities, that's what civil life means, the world of cities. And there are certainly great people outside of those, the Persians and things, but they weren't part of us. And so the Akumene meant everyone, not the, literally the entire world, but everyone in the world as we know it, our world. <laughs> um, I think I might have mentioned this to you, but I think it's when I, I'm an old guy, so I remember when the, the, the Sears Tower used to be the tallest world, building in the world. And so the day that that tower in uh, Kuala Lumpur was declared to be taller than the Sears Tower, the, uh, here's how it was described on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. The Sears Tower, the tallest tower you will ever see. <laughs> and that's the idea of Kibbeni, the, you know, the, the, the only world you will ever see, the, the Greco-Roman world. Okay. Now, what's the pa pattern of a council? Let me, don't look at the slide right now. I'm gonna tell you, let's use an example uh, that should strike, uh, strike some chords with some of you. What is a DTR? 
define the relationship. Let's go through the three steps of a DTR. First of all, before we have one, is you're merrily going along. Let's say you're, 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 with, uh, you're with somebody you're really interested in, you think they're really interested in you, you're, and you're a senior year of college, and it looks like, hey, this is going somewhere. This is, this is it. And that's where you are. And then, let's say, I'm, I'm a guy, so I'm gonna talk as though it's the guy here. Um, you're having a dinner, it's the senior semester, and she starts talking about this wonderful job offer in another part of the country, you know, 3,000 miles away, and she's not mentioning you. There seems to be a disconnect. Because we, I thought I knew where we were. I thought we were both on the same page, but something you said doesn't seem consistent. Did I get it wrong? Were you here with me? Did I get it wrong? That's the background. Did I get it wrong? I thought, so I'm not trying to do anything new. I'm not trying to say, I want to move forward. I want to say, wait a second. We need to understand where we are. You know, where are we? I thought we were here. You seem to be there. Help me out. So you get together and you choose a place and finally you say, hey, you know, here's where I thought about us. I thought this is good, etc." And so we basically define, you know, we basically, here's what I see. We put words around it. Here, for the first time, I'm going to actually say it. I thought we were in this place. I thought we were sort of agreed to get engaged. We hadn't done that, but we were, that's where we were heading. It would probably be now, but we're going away, etc. But that's not the end of the story. I can say what I want, but the trouble is she holds all the cards now. She can either say, yes, or she could say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And she could say, the most painful thing like this, we have such a beautiful friendship, I wouldn't want to lose that. Or it can be more painful, like, I would rather if you were the last man on earth and the human race would die out, I, would, I could live with that. Okay. <laughs> okay. So if you understand that this is our DTR, I, we all thought we were in the same place. Honestly, we all, you know, certainly she thought that maybe I was farther along than she was. It's the whole story of romantic stories, right? As the people always get one person gets there before the other. Is okay, so we get together to try to put words on it to make sure we, let's have a clarification. But that's not the end of the story. The story is there has to be a response. Yes, that's it. Or no, that is not it. And so here we have, this is the pattern of a general counsel. A heresy is always what leads to a general counsel. Is basically somebody says something that doesn't seem right. We all agree that Jesus was the Son of God, and everybody thought they knew what that meant, and he was truly divine. Arius said the same words, the identical words. So we all thought we were on the same page. But suddenly Arius started saying, well, he's divine, he's the Son of God, but the Son of God is a God. You know, after all, think of it this way to be a son, your dad has to be older than you are. So your dad has to be first, that means he'd be sort of inferior. If anything, he'd be an inferior God. And actually, he's sort of a creature. Everything outside of God himself is a creation. So you'd actually be a creature rather than actually be. You maybe have some divine reflection or something. And people say, whoa! That is not what we've understood. And this is a big deal. It's called Arianism. Arius is the one with this uh, uh, you know, uh, doctrine. Oh, I need to go to another slide, don't I, here? Um, the, oh, yeah, we said it's a heresy. Okay. So a decision is, so the council gets together and simply says, what do we believe? Let's put it all on the table, everyone argue this out, and what, what is the church, and they're not coming up with a new doctrine, saying we believe something, what have we, folks, what have you thought this was? Like the relationship, what do you think we were? All of you, where, where have you, what have you, not a new thing, like, hey, let's figure out what we want to believe on this. It's, no, let's define what's there. It's always defining what's there. By the way, definition comes from Latin, the word phenes in Latin means lines. So defi definition means to put lines around something, like put a fence around something. 
it, we'd say articulate would be the modern 21st, but the actual technical term when you read literature and things, they call it definitions. All a definition means we're putting words on something. We're going to articulate what we, everyone thought we understood. You know, we're going to articulate what everybody thought we understood. But that's not the end of the story. Like we say in the 39 Articles of Religion, we say councils have made mistakes. Because I said, oh, well, I can put my words saying, you know, we want to get married, we want to have a family together, etc. And you could say, no, that's not my understanding. You're a nice enough guy, but that is not my understanding. I'm sorry you have this, but this is not it. That's what actually happened, uh, for example, with Arian heresy, we'll find later on, is there were some councils that tried to undo the work of Nicaea, and they, you know, they, they met and they came back and the people of God said, no. I don't know, maybe you're the smart guys officially, but that's not what we learned. That is not the faith we got. And actually, what saved the church was the people, that's called reception. People have got to say, yeah, that's it. So the reception is saying, yeah, you put, you, that's exactly what we mean. It's so like we're saying, how do we define a problem? And I can say, here's how I would define it. And you can say, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Or you can say, no, Stephen, you got it wrong. That's actually not what I'm thinking. You with me on that? So with we, that's how the pattern, it's heresy, decision, which we call articulation or definition, and reception. So what's the authority of a council, though? The authority of a council comes is that the council is telling us what the, church, what the church has understood. The council, we can't just legislate truth. The council is simply putting words on what we have always believed. That's the power. So we're not adding anything. We're simply putting, since you brought up the issue, is, yeah, when we say Jesus is the son of God, here's what we mean by son. We thought this was obvious, but apparently it wasn't. So let us clarify. Here's how we've always understood that to mean. Okay. And so we say, for example, concerning the seven councils of the undivided church, we affirm the teaching of the first four councils and the Christological clarifications of the fifth, sixth, and seventh councils insofar as they are agreeable to the Holy Scripture. Insofar there is the, from, the, from these uh, 39 articles, they took it from there. Doesn't mean like they're not that way, it says because. It means the sense of the insofar at that time meant because. We don't, we don't believe because they are agreeable to Scripture. They were doing nothing more but with actually putting words on what's in the Scripture. We did not, the Roman Catholics think you can sort of go beyond that. We say, no, all we can do is clarify what's always been there. We can clarify, we can't add anything new. Okay, so we accept the first four councils. By the way, why don't we accept everything in the, last, the next three councils, of the general councils? Because there wasn't universal recognition. Everybody agreed on certain things in those councils, but some of the things the councils, people in our view is unless the church comes, the undivided church comes to universal agreement, it's not binding. It might be interesting arguments and things, but what's binding is this is the faith that everyone agrees on. So that's why in the first four councils, everybody agrees at the end of the day. The last three councils, we agree on the things they say about Christology, about who Christ is, etc. But there are other things they said at those councils that we did not all agree on. And so we say we'll take those things we all agreed on and go from there. Now, what was clarified at each of the seven general councils? Okay. The first is the Council of Nicaea, and the heresy was Arianism. Arius was a priest in Alexandria, North Egypt. And uh, what happens here is Arius said, the son, and let me explain what the problem was. Is, this will understand, the fourth and fifth centuries have dramatically different problems. But they're logically coming. The first thing is this. The one thing that separated Judaism from everyone else in the Christianity, because we're, we're Jews, I mean, we shared the same faith of Abraham is we believe there's only one God. That is the absolute, no one believed that. You know, they, they didn't believe in one God. 
So this is our, the faith of Israel, the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is only one. We absolutely believe that. So the real problem initially in the earliest centuries uh, was trying to not confuse Christianity with multiple gods. You know, they're not like two gods. God the Father, God said, so look, we have two gods. They're both God, yeah. But that sounds a lot like multiple gods. You see what the problem is? So this is what caused the problem. And some people like Arius said we have to do something that makes it clear there's only one God. We can't let the divinity of Christ somehow lead people to say, see, you're just like us. You, you believe there are two. You know, there are two gods. So this is what motivated. It wasn't a bad motivation. What motivated him was in Alexandria, they tended to be more philosophical thinkers. We're going to find out in Antioch, there are two great schools in the early church. The school of Alexandria, which were more sort of the professional theologian type philosophers. And with the school of Antioch were sort of biblical scholars. They tend to be more on that side, but they were more worried about just interpreting the text and not worrying about reconciling it somehow, but saying, here's what the text seems to mean. So here, Arius tried to put this together and say, we've got to find a way to explain Jesus as being divine without making him, making him a second God. And he thought the only way to do that is make him subordinate somehow to the Father as a junior varsity God, you know, that, you know, uh, which really fits in with Platonism, which you have these demiurges, you know, emanations from God. And he also said another thing. He said one of his big arguments was, look, you can't have a father, son before you have a father, so the father must antedate, he must come before, he must precede the son. That proves the father is different. There was a time when there wasn't a son. And he said the son was created out of nothing. Because we say everything that comes from God comes, you know, God creates ex nihilo, out of nothing. So if the, if the son isn't actually part of God himself, that means he must be created like everything else. We, as a matter of theology, everything that is not God is created. You know, God makes it. And so the son must be a creature. And they love to point to chapter 8 at one of the lines in the book of Proverbs, you know, about, the, about wisdom being the first creature even after it says it was with God at the beginning as part of all this. And the key figure who helped defeat this heresy almost single-handedly, he's an amazing figure in importance, is Athanasius. Athanasius was the, was the bishop of the patriarch of that same city, Athena of Alexandria. And he called him on the guy, and he had to fight this alone and hard battle because a lot of intellectuals like this. They loved the idea, let's get out of anything that's going to lead this way. A lot of intellectuals really lean this way. And so uh, he was no, believe me, he is no, uh, no intellectual uh, deadweight. I mean, Athanasius is a great man, I mean, a great thinker. But he at times was basically uh, alone, I mean, almost fighting the battle alone. With the people of God saying, no, this is not what we believe. So what we have is, what's the resolution? We have a council at Nicaea, and they said, the son was begotten, not created. And here's the difference that you might help explain to people. What's the difference? Think about when you have children. My father, I could do carpet, he could do everything. He's amazing. And my father liked to say to me, son, it seems to have skipped a generation. I, <laughs> I loved it, but you know, he could do carpentry, plumbing, any, electricity, anything. And he came from a generation where they did that. You know, my, both of my grandfathers built their houses, everything. They, you know, they, that's a different generation. And so in any event, is making a house, building a house is not the same thing as having a child. Because in a sense, a child is part of you. It's your DNA. It's you. It's your life you know, that it comes from. It's not the same thing as creating, is making something, is different than begetting, you know, which is basically an extension of your own life. So they're saying it's, the son is begotten, not created. He's not a creature. 
He comes from the very essence of God himself. He is of the very essence of God himself. The second, which is uh, brilliant from Athanasius, of course, is he's saying the trouble is when we talk about time, is time is defined only if we don't have an infinite amount of it. The reason we talk about time is because we have a beginning and an end. If you don't have a beginning and end, there is no time. There is no time, time, what do we call it? Uh, uh, Time-space continuum. There is no time-space continuum. God can be everywhere. God's everywhere. We are limited, right? We're limited in time, limited in space. God has no limitation. So God, there is no before or after with God. God is an eternal I am. He doesn't have a past or a future. He is. You know, uh, we only talk about sequence. It's, here's a way to look at that uh, that might be helpful, to, sort of an analogy. Is it's true that the warmth and light come from the sun. You know, there's this, the sun and then the warmth and light that come from it. And it sounds sequential. You have to have the sun first, but there can't be a sun at any moment, even for a second, which wouldn't have the warmth and light. They're inseparable in time, aren't they? Even though one produces the other, there's no time where you don't have both. You can't have the sun. You see, even though we've almost, well, wait a minute, but it comes from the sun. But there's never a time that sun was there and there's no light and more warmth. Does that make any sense? That's a good analogy to people. So it's saying, uh, you know, so in a sense for time, it doesn't, just because the sun, you know, comes from the Father doesn't mean, to use the closest analogy I could think would be that. Yeah, it's true he comes from the Father, but again, there was never a time where they weren't both. There's never a father without a son. There's never a son without a father. There's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also the son is fully God. The Greek word is homoousios. Homo in Greek means the same, like homogeneous milk. You know, homogeneity means everything's the same. And so the idea was, usia is the Greek word for substance. We say in Latin substantia. In Greek, it's usia. And so homoousios means of the same being. I mean, there's no difference. There's one being in God. The father and the son share the same being identically. And that's not true with us. For example, we have children, they have part of our DNA, but they also have other DNA. They're a unique combination. It's sort of like the father and the son have the identical. They're just the same. I mean, they have the same essence, this identical God DNA in both of them. No change whatsoever. You know, they have one being, one substance. There's only one God. Okay, so we use the, in Latin we use the word consubstantial. We sometimes say of one being with the father. Consubstantialis uh, is the Latin term. Okay. So in Nicaea, the creedal definition says, so, so to answer Arius, remember, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. And here's what we add to the Apostles' Creed. Eternally begotten of the Father, meaning not only is he begotten of the, of the, of, of the Father, okay, he's eternally begotten. I mean, there's never a time he didn't exist. There's no temporality in his being begotten. That's why we say eternally begotten of the Father. He's God from God, identical. There's no difference, the same exact DNA. There's no difference whatsoever. When we have children, they're still different from us. They're not the same. No, he's still one God. Okay, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made. Okay, of one being with the Father, they share, you know, that of one being with the Father, through, okay, then through him all things were made. Homoousius, consubstantial. Now, why is this so important? This is not a theological, um, um, I can't think of the word, um, things of little value, English, uh, uh, some triviality or something, okay. 
uh, is, it's not some triviality, is because this, is when we talk about what Christ did on the cross for us, you know, he had to become human so he could die. God, we said, is incapable of dying. Remember we talked about that? God can't die, so he had to take on our humanity uniquely for the purpose of being able to die for us. He couldn't do that as God. God can't, there's only one thing God can't do. You might say, well, sin, that's not true, because in a sense, by definition, what God does is, is not sin. So that's sort of a meaningless thing to say God can't sin, because anything he does by definition is not sin. <laughs> but the one thing God honestly can't do is he can't die. He's, he's being itself. However, here's the trouble as a human being. You know, if Adam sinned, if I do the opposite of Adam, at best, that might even the, even the score with Adam, one man for one man, but after Adam had points out what Paul says in his epistles, he said, you know, there's no comparison between the, two, the, two, the, the first Adam and the second Adam. With one Adam came all death came into the world. Billions of people, and we're all, we're all partners in this. We're not innocent victims of Adam. All of us have done our share, contributed our own to this. We are not victims. So there are billions of people who sinned there. How could, if one man, why would one human being's, no matter how good they were, righteousness make up for billions of human beings' unrighteousness? No human being, as a human being alone, would have that power. It's only because he's also God that the power comes from it. It's his divinity that gives power to what he does as a human being. He's truly God and truly man. It's divinity that gives it the power. Otherwise, the best you could do is one man, one man, or even. But one man, several billion people, that's not even. But when that one human being is also the son of God, is God himself, there's plenty to go around, infinite. So it was very important to protect Jesus' divinity or what he does as a man just doesn't have any power. It might be nice symbolically, like the Alamo is sweet, you know, thing to look at, but it wouldn't have the power of the crucifixion comes. His humanity makes it possible. It's his divinity that gives it its power because God dies on the cross. Okay, now the second council is at Constantinople. <coughs> and, I, and here's what the fathers have told us. This is natural. What's, who's the first person in the Trinity we le learn about? It's the whole story of the Old Testament. God the Father, because we see his work in creation. So the first person we know anything about in the Trinity is the Father. He's the first person we know about in logical order. Then in Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, the second person we're introduced to is Jesus. You know, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of the Father. But it's only after we have Jesus <coughs> that we actually can learn meaningfully about the Holy Spirit. We mentioned the Holy Spirit, but we only can find out about the Holy Spirit. Jesus himself says, look, I tell you guys, it's better for you I go, because until I go, you can't really get the Holy Spirit. So God reveals himself as Father, then Son, then Holy Spirit. We talked about them. We did Trinitarian theology. So the same thing the fathers say is true, that the church first knows who God is, the God is one. The second thing is who's, who's Jesus, you know, the, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, but who's the Holy Spirit? And this is odd because, you know, to this day, people who just read the Bible say, is that sort of like the, a force of God? It doesn't, is that a person? Remember, the scriptures say you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You know, so we say it is a person, but how do we know that from the scriptures? And let me give you a hint what the real argument was that took the day. And here what we have uh, here is Basil the Great, or called Basil of Caesarea. He's the key man who brought us through in the Holy Spirit. Athanasius believed this, but Athanasius uh, died actually a year before this council. The one who really takes it home is Basil. 
you know, Athanasius was getting older and Basil became his sort of number two. The two really worked together in fighting for the, the true, uh, true faith. And Athanasius dies in 380, and so it's Basil who takes it home with the Holy Spirit. And there are people who are saying the Holy Spirit was created, or it's just a force that emanates from God, and it's not equal to the Father and the Son. Here's basically, in theology, the argument that Basil used that took the day. And it's, I'm going to use a silly argument that you've heard just because it's clear. I mean to be respectful, but this is really going to become clear to you. Have you ever heard the argument, look, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So basically, the argument of Basil is, look at the two things about the Holy Spirit. He's always described as doing things that only God can do. He's talking about, you know, he's, he gives life, he does things. Only God can do these things. The Holy Spirit is describing as doing things that only God can do. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is given the same honor as the Father and the Son. We say, you know, we all have all these Trinitarian references. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's, and the, all those Trinitarian formulas in Paul, he's treated. So this is what we mean when we say he's, we're saying he's basically does the things God does and receives the same honor. And also we know they're not the same because remember classic Trinitarian passages, we went through this, are Jesus said, look, to the apostles, it's better for you I go because I go to you, I can go to the Father and I can have him ascend the Spirit. So the Spirit clearly is different from both the Father and the Son. But yet it's a third point, you know, and the Spirit himself will be your advocate. You know, we talk about the Spirit is grieved at our sins. So he's a person. So this is how we got to this position. And that was the position taken at, and then we amended the creed to add the extra lines. And as Basil of Caesarea gave us those words. The Holy Spirit, now one thing we might say, does Jesus have a brother? Well, you know, does Jesus have a brother? And the answer is no. And so we can't, only Jesus is begotten. So how do we describe the Holy Spirit? He comes forth from, the word we use in theology is proceed. He proceeds from the Father. Now here there came, I think, how many of you were with our talk on Trinitarian theology? We have just one of you? Okay, we're going to have two of you. You were all of you? I didn't know how many because we, I get the semesters, I do other, okay. So you'll remember there are two ways of looking at it, but one thing is, and another term you'll see sometimes with proceeds is what we have in the creed. But the Holy Spirit is breathed out. He's the breath of God. He's breathed out. So we, all, we actually call that spiration because in Latin, spirare means to breathe out. You know, spirare, spiration. It means the Holy Spirit is breathed out by the... Now, there are two ways of looking at it. The Eastern, in the Nicene Creed, we said he, he proceeds from the Father. Now, there's an argument in theology between the East and the West. In the East, the theology was, Jesus also says the Holy Spirit, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He says, the, I'm going to ask the Father to send him, he talks of himself sending it. The Eastern Church says, he comes from the Father through the Son. The Western, so the, the Western Church says he comes from the Father and the Son combined. The, the, like, where do you come from? You're both parents. So from the, com the combination of both parents. So here's what it means. In the Western Church, especially through Augustine, our view of the Holy Spirit is, is what his proceeding means. It's like when two people love each other and come together, they have a child. Is the Holy Spirit is the love, is the product of the love between the Father and the Son. That's what he means proceed. So we often describe him as he's that the actual life that comes, the love of the Father and Son himself. That's the, where the Holy Spirit proceeds. 
That's a big thing in Western spirituality and things. The Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and Son, but a person. Now, if you know, love between a husband and wife becomes a real person. <laughs> is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person, but he proceeds from, he's the product of the Father, and fa the Father and Son's mutual love is, the Holy, is where the Holy Spirit comes from. The Father begets the Son in their mutual love, from their mutual love proceeds the Holy Spirit. Okay, in the East they prefer to say proceed. Why? Because they want to say, well, the Father is, in, the, in theology and in, uh, in philosophy, we talk about a principle, principium, means the first place, you know, from the very beginning. And they want to make the Father the principle of all things. And in the West we say the Father and Son together are the joint principle of the Holy Spirit. Where in the East they want to say the Father is the unique principle of everything. So again, but Jesus, why the Holy Spirit isn't a brother of Jesus? Because he actually proceeds from the Father, and the Son is connected either through the Son or from the Father and the Son together. We believe that as Anglicans, that we believe in Western theology. Say, even though we're willing to say the creed without, we don't, we don't have to have those words. As a matter of theology, we believe that, that the Father, that the, the Holy Spirit is the product of the, you know, proceeds from the Father and the Son. So we say we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he's worshipped and glorified. You now understand, with the, he's worshipped and glorified. And the giver of life, that's something only God does. The Holy Spirit, he's the Lord, the giver of life. Remember, he breathes into the man, he receives life in, in Adam. The Lord, the giver of life, so he does what God does, and he receives, with the Father and Son, he's worshipped and glorified. He receives, he has the same honor the Father and Son have, therefore he's God. Constantinople also had, there are some people who are trying to say a deal. There's a lot of Arians were not happy with Nicaea, to put it lightly. And they tried to strike up a compromise. And I love this. This is called semi-Arianism. Remember how we look at that parenthesis where it says Greek? Remember we said to say of the same substance in Greek is homoousios, the double O, homoousios. If you add iota, which is the smallest letter in the, in the uh, Greek alphabet, it's like a little, like a comma, that becomes a different word. In Greek, homoousteus means not the same, but like, similar, bearing, you know, appearing the same. So they're saying he's not the same substance of the Father, but of a like substance, a similar substance to the Father. He's not God, but he's divine. He's similar, you know. There's a recognition type of thing. And they, they drop this out. No, they, they refer to homoousis. He's the same. There's not two gods. There's, not, there's no separation. They have, there's only one essence of God. Within that essence, we find Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three hypostases. Okay. So what we have here. So at the end, by the end of the fourth century, the two ecumenical councils of Nicaea and, uh, F, and uh, rather, uh, First Constantinople, we now agree on the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that the one God has three hypostases, you know, three persons, we say in Latin, persona in Latin. Three persona, personae in Latin are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they all share. This is why we say, for example, if you speak, if you speak to any of the persons of the Trinity, you speak to God entire. Anything any member of the Trinity does, God does, because every, everyone, they're not a part of, the, of God. Every, God only appears as the Holy, it's undividable. So if you, when you talk to Jesus, you're talking to God. Not just a part of God, it's all of God. That's what we can say God died on the cross. Now, we can't do it vice versa. If we talk about the persons of the Trinity, the Father didn't die on the cross, only the Son did. But the Son is God, meaning so the Father didn't die on the cross, but God died on the cross. Because anything true of a person is true of God, but not vice versa.
Make sense? Okay. So the, okay, so we settle the Trinity in the third century, but we have another problem. The problem is, how do we work out what the Bible teaches about Jesus, who he was? He's God, he's man. How do we work out the details of that? So the third, we have a man named Nestorius. Nestorius comes from Antioch. And remember we said Antioch is the one who just does a lot of biblical exegesis. They're not big, they're not philosophers. That's not what they basically do. They're big biblical exegetes. Actually, most of us, uh, you know, as from our, our, our Reformed tradition would feel more akin to them in some ways. And Antioch is much more theological. They're much more, you know, well, let's look at the text, you know, this kind of thing. So looking at the text, they tended to emphasize the second person of the Trinity, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the, you know, is almost completely separate from Jesus of Nazareth. It's almost like one of those, I don't have them anymore, but when I was a kid, they used to have chain gang movies, because thank God we don't have chain gangs anymore. But in a chain gang movie, the classic trope is you'd be chained to some other prisoner, so if you escape, you're both stuck together. And the, the whole drama would be, what do we do? Because you can't do something independently. You have to stay together and make it work. So they turn Jesus into sort of a chain gang movie. It's sort of the second person of the Trinity, and this, I'm here minding my own business, Jesus of Nazareth, sort of gets caught in a, in a chain gang. And they always distinguish what's true of Jesus. We have to separate that kind of stuff from what's true of the second person of the Trinity. Almost like the two separate people that are just sort of stuck together. And Nestorius, not surprisingly, came from Antioch, and he became the Archbishop of Constantinople, the capital of the empire. He became the Archbishop of Star Con or the Patriarch of Constantinople. And so he had a teaching, and here's what really got people going with this. His he argued that Mary was the mother of Jesus of Nazareth, but she in no way was the mother of, of God. Of, you know, she's, only she's only a mother of part of Christ. She was just mother of his human part, not of his divine part. And here's what bothers the church, is you can't separate Jesus. There's only one, that we say in the creed, we, why do you why do say the word one Lord Jesus Christ? Is Jesus is one person. You know, Jesus Christ is one, he's not two separate people that are sort of have a, you know, union. They're, they're one, he's only one, there's one Lord Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, but only one. And they're saying, you're treating like he's two different people. You can never separate the two. What's true of one is true of the other, in the sense of if you see, if you're with Jesus of Nazareth, you're with, like, like Jesus says to Philip, if you see me, you've seen the Father. You can't for a moment separate the two of us. So the argument became, and this is why they came up with the term mother of God, because the crucial argument that they use as a, the classic argument is, was Mary just the mother of Jesus of Nazareth, or was he the mother of God? Not that she gave birth to God who's always been, Mary lives in time, but the fact is, to be the mother of Jesus is to carry God in you as well. Like in the East, they also talk about the Theotokos, the one who bears God. She's not just bearing the human Jesus of Nazareth. What's in her womb is Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. That's why we have the reaction when Jesus comes next to John the Baptist. You know, he's approaching Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And that's why he, does, he gives the miraculous prophecy of wheat leaping in the womb. So you're with it. So the, the point is you can't separate the two. And that's why, the, so the term mother of God, which is a good orthodox term, or theotokos, isn't saying, isn't trying to proclaim the glories of Mary. It's all about Jesus, saying you can't separate for a moment what happens to Jesus Christ at every moment. He is never for an instant, from the first moment of his conception, that zygote in Mary's womb is God as well as man. 
That was the point of saying mother of God. So therefore, you can't say, well, she's just, because they're trying to divide him into two separate people. There's never a moment where Jesus of Nazareth is not the second person of the Trinity. Does that make sense? So it's not trying to honor Mary calling it the mother of God. It's, it's certainly an honor to be, you know, to have born Christ. It's saying about Jesus that we're not going to allow you to say that, you know, to make this Jesus of Nazareth somewhere a junior varsity friend of, of the second person of the Trinity. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ, indivisible. And the key figure here is Cyril of Alexandria. Here he's looking up an icon of, 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 of the Virgin, you know, bearing, uh, bearing Christ. Now, the resolution, he's a single person with two natures. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ, but he's fully God and fully man. He's both. He has two natures, one person, but two natures within that one person. And why is that important? Because we function as a person. Even though we may have conflicting things within us, ultimately we have to function one way or another. <laughs> and so Jesus Christ always is unified. You know, he has to function as one person. People function. Natures are when people are just there. But he has to take action. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. He can't do two things like that. He's, he always is one Lord Jesus Christ who does something which is completely homogenous with those two natures. Then we had another thing at this council. This is something that escapes the East entirely, but they took care of it here. Is, uh, the, one of the first English theologians we hear of is Pelagius, who sadly is, uh, is, uh, is a heretic. What Pelagius uh, believed is he emphasized that somehow that a human being without divine help, theoretically, his view was God wouldn't ask us to do something we are incapable of doing. And therefore, that a human being theoretically, for God's justice, is in a position of perfectly obeying the commandments. It's highly unlikely, but he, there's, we, can't, we can't blame anything outside of ourselves. If we don't obey, an, obey a commandment, it's 100% our fault, but we could if we tried harder. To simplify, that's what he's saying. This wrecks the whole idea. No, the reason we needed Jesus, there would be no need for the cross then. We just need to try harder. We just to have a better coach. The whole, the Christian truth is original sin, which doesn't exist in the Eastern Church. The Eastern Church uh, believes, they, they believe in an equivalent, but they, they call it ancestral sin. Because we emphasize the fact that from the very first moment, they look upon more of the condition. It's like being born in a leper colony. Whereas for us, we're saying, no, from the very moment of our inception, that we're somehow, uh, teared, uh, good English, um, um, uh, stained. You know, we're sort of suffering from this. We're born with it, like a, like a crack baby. Is, you know, we never took crack. You know, they, the reason we're a crack baby is mom took crack, but we're suffering from it. The fact, even, you know, the fact is, I'm not like other kids right now. I have a, I'm born with a problem. And I, we're born with disordered affections, meaning Adam could have said yes to God. There was nothing that why, no reason he couldn't have said yes to God. We can't. The best person among us could never have said yes to God because we're all born with that sin that stops us from perfectly obeying God. So the council said no. They're saying we have to emphasize the fact that human, human beings can obey God, but it's only through his grace. His grace makes it possible for us to say yes. But without God's grace, no good thing is possible. That was reaffirmed at this council. Yes, we're in the council. This is all at the Council of Ephesus. It was a side issue to most of the people there because in the East, this was never an issue. It was uniquely a Western issue. You know, sometimes what strikes me when you do historical theology is what's really a big deal in one place, other places. It's like politics and things. Something that's a big issue in one place just isn't a big issue somewhere else. You know, people just have their issues. 
And in the East, that just was never a problem. They never had a problem with this. Whereas in the West, it became a real issue. Frankly, thanks to Augustine uh, was one of the, because he really wanted to roll with this. One thing you have to understand between Romans and Greeks, Romans, because they were lawyers rather than philosophers, tend to really push things right to the, to the edge. Uh, they'll just plow like a lawyer. If this is what it's, and they'll go to radically fall it off a cliff. That's sort of the, the Western Roman approach. Might I mention that John Calvin was a trained lawyer, not a theologian. And we have that, that idea of just push it off the cliff, you know, in the sense that, you know, this is, you know, yeah, it's, a very, it's sort of a general trend you find when you study historical theology. The fourth general council, which really co sort of completes the faith of the ancient church, is that we had here, now this is sort of like sort of uh, the revenge of the, of the Nestorians, is, or rather the, the revenge, remember we had the, um, what had happened after the council, we said that we're emphasizing the oneness, uh, you know, of, of, of God. Uh, you know, that we, in the story, said there are two people. No, there's one Lord Jesus Christ. So what people in Alexandria tried to start doing is saying, but they want, remember, Alexandria always wanted to emphasize the oneness of God, you know, especially everything else. And they didn't like, this sounds awfully strange having he's truly God, truly man simultaneously. Here was their solution. What happens with a drop of, of this is the actual example you use. You put a drop of honey in the ocean, what happens? It's completely absorbed in the water. You know, it was there for a moment, but it ceases. You know, it's just absorbed. And they're saying Christ's divinity was so overwhelming, it absorbed his humanity. It was leaving nothing of it. So yeah, it was true. He was truly God and truly man, but he overcame that right away, his divinity. And they call that mon, uh, monophysitism. In English, the accent's on the second O, monophysitism. Anything that has mono uh, in it, you always put the accent on the second syllable. We're going to talk monothelitism. You know, just always remember, put the accent on the second syllable. By the way, this council is called Chalcedon. It's not Chalcedon. The CH is the Greek CH, which is pronounced K. Chalcedon. Like Chaldea, not Chaldea. Chaldea. Chalcedon. And it's not Chalcedon. It's Chalcedon is the English pronunciation. Okay, just so you know, because a lot of things, you read a lot of books, you get me embarrassed. If you read and read a lot, uh, here's the thing that's what tough, if you don't know about in English, if you don't know about the tough thing about learning English. In, in, if you learn language like, like Spanish and French, you have to learn genders for everything. And that's really a challenge in English. It's so you don't have to, and you have to know them. You can't use them if you don't know their gender. The opposite is true. The hardest thing with English is you have to, every word you have to memorize the accent. There's no systematic way to know it. You have to work word by word. You have to learn, you can't say mechanical laboratory isn't the same as mechanical laboratory. You can't understand, if you get, if you put the syllable, if you put the accent on the wrong syllable, it sounds funny, funny, funny. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that, that's to help you out. It's also called Eutychianism because Eutyches was a man who proposed this. Now, this would basically make Christ's humanity a joke. Basically, he was human, we got it better, better right away. That means his temptations wouldn't be real, would they? Yeah, he'd just be God, you know, God in a bod you know, uh, going around. And so the key figure of solving this was Leo the Great, Bishop of Rome. As you see here, he's actually carrying the Thomas. It's called the, the Great Tome. This is where he wrote, um, he wrote, here's what the Roman Church has always believed about this. And people said, that's it. Uh, and so what we have here is Jesus Christ is true God and true man. He's both. He's a single person, but he has two natures, and those two natures exist in their perfection. He has everything that is characteristic of a human being. He has everything that is characteristic of God. 
The fact that he's both doesn't change the other. You know, so for example, he has a human will and a divine will. That's why in the garden he says, not my will, but your will be done. He aligns his will with the Father. That's why he can feel temptation. That's why his temptation means something. You know, if you don't want to do something, it's not much to resist temptation, is it? So Jesus really can be tempted because he's a true, in every sense, human being. He's truly limited in his knowledge. We talked about that. What does Jesus know? He only knows those, as, as a human being, in his human side, he doesn't have any special gifts we don't have. He had to learn to be a carpenter, and he probably has some pretty rotten birdhouses and tables when he first started that only Mary could love. Okay. He didn't know foreign languages. He'd have to learn them like anybody else would have to learn them. What he did know, that he is the son of God, and he knew everything about salvation, the plan of salvation. Like, that's why we have him in the temple. That's what the meaning of that episode is. Some people tried to argue that Jesus sort of became the Christ at his baptism, that God, that the second person of the Trinity sort of came upon him at that moment. And that's why Luke puts in his gospel, what happens when he goes to the temple? And Mary says, your father and I have been looking for you for three days. And he said, excuse me, this is my father's house here. Who's the, that guy's not my dad. Love the guy, but he's not my dad. So it's clear that Jesus knows who his father is. So Jesus is always aware of who he is. He knows what's in the human heart. He knows everything he needs to be the Messiah. He knows the, about the, but he doesn't know what we're going to have for lunch tomorrow. That guy, he's, he doesn't have special, he has, otherwise he wouldn't be suffering all the things we suffer as humans. <coughs> and without confusion, change, division, or separation. And here are these beautiful decrees of the council. Actually God and actually man. A rational soul and a body. He's the same reality as God as far as his deity is concerned, the same reality as ourselves as far as his whole humanness is concerned. He's truly just like us. And he's truly just like God. The only thing different is without sin. He does not have, like Adam, he does not, he's not born with a, with a nature that makes it inevitable that he will sin. He, it's possible for him, to, he isn't born with a virus. Now you say, well, that's nothing if you don't have the virus. Oh, no, it isn't. Adam didn't have the virus, Eve didn't have the virus, but they sinned. You can certainly be subject to temptation. But at least he had the possibility of saying yes. He's the second Adam that way, and he said yes, where Adam and Eve said no. And it goes out, the two natures, you can read this. This is really, uh, you know, the, this decree is fabulous. Uh, distinctive in each nature is not nullified by the union. Everything remains, but it's still one. That's why we say one Lord Jesus Christ. To emphasize there's only one person. He acts as one single person. But within that one person, there's truly God and there's truly man. But he always acts as one Lord Jesus Christ. He's not schizophrenic. Okay. And it keeps going. You have all the details. They're worth reading. Oh, I'm sorry. going the wrong way here. Okay. Why is the uh, importance? Uh, he has to be a human being because the fathers like to say he cannot redeem what he did not assume. If he weren't truly a man like us, he can't redeem that. And secondly... Um, Okay, and secondly, uh, again, we talked about the, why they did this, uh, because it would have been overreaction the other direction. Now, what's this? I'm sorry, we have the fifth Constantinople. In uh, the fifth council of, Const uh, the second Constantinople, which is the fifth ecumenical council, the only thing important to us is some people were still trying to, um, they were trying to go back the other direction again, an overreaction, going more to Nestorianism. And the council said, no, folks, it's over, basically. They just reaffirmed what all the first four had said, and that's the end of it. That's the end of the problem. So there's nothing new at this council. Some people are trying to say, oh, this is our moment. You don't want to, be, you don't want to say God's one, so let's go be more like Nestorius and emphasize their... No, no. 
we told you folks, it's, it's one person, two natures, it's over. Council 6 is interesting because some people argued monotheletism. Uh, thelos, if you know, know Greek, with thelos, not telos, telos means an end or a goal, thelos means will. So this means, uh, some people argued, yeah, he was truly God and he's truly man, except for one thing. He only had one will. And saying, no, if he's not, not having your own will doesn't make you a human being. That's just having a body. You know, there has to be a human, uh, human will to actually stand up against temptation. There has to be the possibility of saying no. Okay. Uh, the seventh general council has to do with, the last of the seventh general had to do with iconoclasm. Okay. And why did this happen now? This is in 787. If you look at that date, it should remind you one of the great events of world history. The previous century, what happens? It's the rise of, of Muhammad and Islam. And one of the things characteristic of Islam is they are radical iconoclasts. That is, they believe all images, actually the purest forms, like Wahhabi, don't allow you to make any image of anything living, you know, anything sentient. So you can't even draw pictures of horses and stuff in the purest form of Wahhabi, for example, Islam. That's why you have so many of this geometrical, uh, beautiful geometrical art and the like. Now, just to give you a little background, here is what happened in the early church. Is in the Bible, if you look at the word for image, we translate, the word image is translated by two separate words in the Hebrew Bible. And also the Greek Bible, which translates the Hebrew Bible, uses two separate words as well. For example, when we come to, um, to where man is created in his image and likeness, the Hebrew word is tselem, it means image, it's a good thing, like image and likeness, and in Greek it's called an icon. We all know that word now, icon. But before computers, no one knew that word. That was the term I'd have to explain. And I, you know, everyone now knows an icon, but no one, no one before computers knew that. That was always esoteric. You'd break the news to them. What's that word? No, an icon means an image in Greek. Fair enough? But in the Ten Commandments, it doesn't say image. It will be translated that way. It actually says eidolon. And it's fessel in, in Hebrew. It's a different word. And so what's the difference? And here's the difference the rabbis understood. See, I get one of these things. Uh, is uh, the, um, what the rabbis understood is this. What's the difference? An icon is a true image. It truly represents. You know, when you look at that, that's, it's like showing you the picture. It's saying, here's, here's our bishop. Here's Bishop Stewart. And it's a picture of Bishop Stewart saying, yeah, it's an authentic image of our bishop. If I show you a picture of another bishop, say this Bishop Stewart, you say, whoa, whoa, dude, that's not him. So what made an idolon different from an icon is the Jews felt, or you know, uh, you know, Solomon uh, Fessel, is they would say the difference is one is true and the other is false. That's why any image of God is false because God's a spirit. We can't see God. So by definition, any image of God is a false image. But they had no trouble with making images. I mean, for example, the, the synagogues had, were filled. The walls were covered with pictures of Old Testament scenes and things. They just didn't picture God. You with me on that? So when the church came, the church argued that this had the same distinction. They said, look, the thing is with Jesus Christ, Jesus said, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because of the incarnation and because we can't separate Jesus' humanity from his divinity, to see Jesus of Nazareth, an actual human, we actually see God. If you see Jesus of Nazareth, you see God. So they argued we could make an authentic picture of Jesus and Jesus God. That's an authentic picture of God. It's true. That's what God looked like. 
it's no longer a false image, you know, something of our imagination. It's really what happened. And so the church had these images, you know, that thing. And with Islam, it's sort of, you know, they, they went on this radical, you know, thing against all images. And so uh, there was a group in Christianity that tried to sort of adapt that into Christianity and began smashing the images, etc. They call the iconoclast. Clast it means to break in Greek, you know, uh, you know so the, the image breakers. And they, um, they argued that the, against the argument that, well, Jesus was truly God, truly man. They're saying, well, you could, we can't depict his divine nature. You know, we can only depict his human nature, so we're not showing the full Jesus. Of course, the argument from orthodoxy is, excuse me, you can't, we, we said in, it, you can't separate the two. You see one, you're seeing both. Philip said, if you see me, you see the Father. So what they ended up getting at the conclusion they came to is they said they made a distinction because what I should have put these down here for you is latria, which is the Greek word for worship, adoration is how adoratio in Latin, is something that we owe to God alone. We don't worship anything but God himself. You know, worship belongs to God alone, not to anyone except the one God. We worship God alone. Dulea in Greek, which we translate in Latin as veneratio, venerate, means to show honor to something. So, for example, we stand up when they see the flag or you have to play the Pledge of Allegiance or something. You know, we stand up. It's a sign of reverence. We're not worshiping the flag. We're simply showing a sign of honor. You know, this is a symbol of something. Or we're simply recognizing the symbol in honor of the thing that it represents, but we're not, we, we're not giving any honor to it as such. It's simply a representation of something. And so they're simply saying we venerate images, we worship God. And so they justified uh, that was their basis. And this, uh, that was the end. Now, in the, I should tell you, it's a little more complicated in the West. The initial reaction in the West was something called the Synod of Frankfurt. And part of this came because Charlemagne was miffed. Charlemagne was the emperor, the Frankish emperor in the West, big man on campus. And uh, Charlemagne, none of his bishops were invited to the council. Just an oversight, but he, he miffed being the only one not invited to the party. It was an oversight, but in any event. So he has his own council there to look at this. And he says, this, it's called the Synod of Frankfurt. And they said, look, we agree that there's nothing wrong with having pictures of Christ, you know, but, the, but we don't think they should ever be used in worship. You know, we think they should be used as simply decorative. You know, they can be decorative art and things, but they shouldn't be actually be objects you're showing direct honor to. They should be, and they should be used for instruction. It's nice to have books to show the kids, especially in a preliterate world, you can show them, but it shouldn't be used for that. So that was part of the problem here, but, later, but when they send letters to the Pope in Rome, and I shouldn't call him the Pope, he's not really the Pope in that sense then. You know, he's the Bishop of Rome, the Patriarch of Rome. He doesn't agree with them. He said, look, the council was right on this, and so we have sort of a mixed heritage in the West. So we end up basically, finally the Pope, they end up adopting the, the, the council in its entirety. But it was a, sort of a mixed bag. But we certainly agree that there's nothing wrong per se with images. Okay. So let's do some questions here. How many Catholic creeds are there? Mm -hmm. What are they? Yes, oh, that is so, wow, dude. <laughs> I am impressed. It's actually Constantinopolitan. Constant, that's how it's pronounced. Okay. Constantinopolitan. I'll say it. Constantinopolitan. Constantinopolitan. <laughs> okay. Okay. And what's the third? The Athanasian. Those are the three Catholic creeds. 
Okay, what is the authority of the general, general council, councils ultimately based upon? Scripture or tradition? Their ultimate source is the fact that they faithfully represent the church's reading of Scripture. Their authority comes from Scripture. As we like to say typically, and when you look at our Anglican literature, everything there can be plainly proved from Scripture. <coughs> Which heresy treated the two natures of Christ as though they were two separate persons? Was it Pelagianism, Arianism, Gnosticism, or none of the above? What's that? Nestorianism. We have a winner. And you got to know your heresies. Why? Because let me tell you this. Is stay with a winner. There's a reason they say lazy is sin. The enemy is lazy. When something works, you don't get in the way. In politics, there's a saying I love. That's what's in the office of an elected official. You know, I work for the elected state controller of, you know, in, in, um, in Tennessee. And uh, the, the saying in politics is when your enemy's about to shoot himself in the foot, don't grab the gun. And so, <laughs> so the idea is that the devil, frankly, why try new stuff when the other stuff works so well? So these always keep, like our bishop is emphasizing Gnosticism. He just keeps bringing up the same stuff that's going to help you because these will keep coming up in your ministry. Why, you know, when the, you start with the stuff that works, the tried and true, this is what, tried and false. And Pelagianism, Pelagianism is the, is the doctrine that somehow we can make this a self-help project. Now it's true, you know, we cooperate, but it's always God's grace. This is what gives us power. Otherwise, we, what happens, people get discouraged because they're right, I can't do this. Someone with an alcohol pump saying, you're right, I, I, can't, I can never do this, but God can. That takes all the difference in the world. So it's not we don't just rest back, but we're saying, I understand. It's like one of the first things in Alcoholics Anonymous thing, I'm powerless over this, but there's someone, there's, there's, there's a greater power. So it's basically emphasizing never to never stay without that blind path. You know what's horrible about that is spiritually is first of all we'll get discouraged because we'll realize that it might look to other people like the real thing, but it's fake. It's not the real virtue. And what's worse, we might believe our own story. That's when we become hypocrites. We actually start believing it. We start feeling better than other people. Okay, Arianism is a belief that Jesus is somehow not the same. Is is a junior varsity god. You know, he's a really great and has, you know, but he's not to be confused with God, capital G. No, there's only one God in Jesus' part, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Gnosticism was this belief that matter's bad and, you know, that, that this, and that, there are two conclusions we draw from that. One conclusion is, if matter's bad, who cares about it? As long as your head is in the right place, what you do with your body doesn't make any difference. Don't get, don't get wrapped up in that stuff, as long as your head is in the right place. Or vice versa, you come super antimatter in the sense of you're super uh, big on, on everything being negative. Like there's some people are negative on, on sexuality. They're, they're, you know, they're always very ascetic. Okay. Uh, so it's, not, it's Nestorianism is the belief, the two. Christ has both a divine will and a human will. Is that true or false? True. He, now he perfectly aligns. That's our goal is to perfectly align our will with the fathers. You know, that's our goal. We, Christ aligned that will, and he makes it possible for us to do the same thing. He, make, by his grace, makes it possible to perfectly align. But we still have our own will. That's what makes us us. <laughs> okay. Fifth question. Which of the general councils created or amended a creed? A and B, right. They're the only ones. That's right. That's the end of my <laughs> Yeah. 
So the answer is going to be F. A gave us the original Nicene Creed that just didn't mention anything except I believe in the Holy Spirit. Thanks to Athanasius working with Basil the Great, we bring the ship home, uh, you know, at the Second Council, at First, Con uh, First Council. Also, they were also aided by another great, great, great theologian, uh, Gregory Nazianzus, who actually has the title theologian, which in the Eastern Church is a big deal. Very few people get that title. He's actually called a theologian. As a religious title, it's only applied to certain great, it means that they are just, they speak what theology is to the church. Gregory Nazianzus is one of the, the theologians, the three theologians of the Eastern Church.